As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Everyone, welcome to yet another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivetus, and thank you once again for tuning in. So we've got one of my favorite true crime subjects on the docket today: John Dillinger, Public Enemy Number One, Outlaw, Desperado, Depression Era Robin Hood, Cold-Blooded Murderer. There have been lots of opinions over the years on who John Dillinger really was, and I've got one of the world's best experts on the subject. Ellen Poulsen, and my conversation with her was an entertaining marathon once again, so there are two parts to this interview. But a quick word before we begin part one. A grand shout out today to Kim Elliott of Corning, California, one of my brand new NewsHound patrons on Patreon.com. Thank you so much for your wonderful patronage, Kim. And again, a thank you to all of my amazing patrons at Patreon.com slash most notorious. There are, by the way, different tiers for different budgets, but all tiers come with ad-free episodes delivered straight to your phone of not only my most notorious podcast, but my Minnesota's most notorious podcast as well. Swing on by to check it out. All right, let's get to today's interview. I am so thrilled to be speaking once again to fan favorite Ellen Polson, who has been on the show twice before, once for Don't Call Us Malls, a book about the many colorful women of the John Dillinger gang, and again for an interview about her Lucky Luciano book. She's here today to chat about her brand new book called Chasing Dillinger, Police Captain Matt Leach, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Rivalry to Capture Public Enemy Number One. Thank you for coming on again. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. So I want to mention right off the bat that you had a co-author on this book, Lori Hyde. Yes, Lori is an ace Dillinger researcher. She's um, an Indiana girl, and she has a great love for the subject. And uh, we agreed, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago by email that we were both very interested in a character from the Dillinger story named Captain Matt Leach. At that time, there were a lot of uh, mystery surrounding him and unanswered questions about even his origins, things as simple as that. So we decided by email to collaborate, and uh, it was great having Lori to bounce things off of because she has a good eye for detail, and she really knows the story. I'll bet it's fun to collaborate with someone for a change. It keeps you on task. I, I always used to say, oh, I have to show Lori I'm doing something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, So it kind of keeps your nose to the grindstone. It's almost like the imaginary friend that you have to answer to. 
And uh, it was uh, it made it a lot easier to stick with the subject, knowing that I could just email her with everything. I'll bet. And she's a very credible researcher, so I knew I was safe passing the different things I found back to her. Well, that's wonderful. Um, well, dis- despite my deep, deep interest in, in John Dillinger, I haven't done an episode about him yet. We've talked about him a bit during our interview about the the women of the gang, and I've chatted with Paul Maccabee a little bit about him. But maybe now we can get deeper into the subject. So what is it about John, John Dillinger? What makes him such an incredibly compelling figure? Well, I've had to ask myself that because I was actually asked that question in Chicago I go with my husband every July to Dillinger Night at the Biograph. It's a, a com- it's a place for Dillinger geeks to gather and to hang out, and uh, it's a nice evening. And um, I was asked that question that night, what makes him so compelling? And I wasn't satisfied with the answer that I gave at that time, and I've had to think about it. So it's almost like I have an, an answer to give you that's almost rehearsed. At the time, my answer was, during the 1930s, he was uh, a person who offered up excitement for the price of a newspaper. People read newspapers during the Depression, and they were generally about three pennies. And you could sit back and you could read all about the exploits of a person who was defying all the rules and apparently beating the odds until it caught up with him. But that answer doesn't explain why Dillinger is still on everybody's minds, including mine. And so to dig a little deeper into who he was, I came up with this answer. I think that because Dillinger came of age in the 1930s, which was an interwar period where America was becoming very isolationist, the people who came over from, quote, the other side, you know, unquote, they didn't want to remember Europe. They didn't want to speak their old languages. Everybody had to kind of toe the line and become an American, and outsiders were very much suspect. So we had garden variety gangsters who all had these ethnic overtones, um, and Dillinger did not have that. He came across as a a heartland type of person from an Indiana farm. So he provided the United States at that time with an anti-hero who in many ways was like, you know, the boy next door or the guy next door, not some suspect from the inner city who really they didn't relate to. So in my opinion, That had something to do with why Dillinger stayed with people for such a long time. And he stayed with people because he was publicized, because newspaper writers also related to that type of a character, and uh, they kept him in people's minds. Then there were crazy things that started to happen with his image in the 40s and 50s and 60s, that his body part was... His excuse me for saying it, but one of his body parts was in the Smithsonian, which is a ridiculous joke to people nowadays. But that had something to do with keeping him going, too, I think. All kidding aside, I really think so. Yeah, and there has always been this myth that John Dillinger didn't die in Chicago. The uh, that that Dillinger did not die at the biograph is something that has lingered. It's always been a, a fringe conspiracy theory. And as I'm sure you know, Eric, it's in it's in the media now and in the news that um, that idea is coming back to haunt us. No pun intended that um, maybe he, he it wasn't him who was killed at the biograph. Maybe it's not his body in the grave. So that's another rather morbid aspect of the story that seems to be keeping Dillinger in the news today. What's always been so fascinating to me, and I'm sure you and many others, is how 
someone from such a loving family, a nice kid, could go bad so early on. Could you explain how it happened? Okay, Eric, the, uh, you know, the idea of the bad seed is kind of um, ingrained. I guess the people of a certain generation who all saw that old black and white movie, the idea of a nice family and kids that go wrong, right? Kids that have some kind of a problem and they, they appear twisted or just bad kids. He began to get into trouble as a teenager um, and he, it went downhill. I mean, he got involved with a man named Edgar Singleton, who was just one of a lot of guys in the neighborhood who led him down the wrong path. He and Edgar Singleton committed a crime. They robbed a local grocer and the grocer fought back. And uh, Dillinger hit the grocer over the head with some bolts that were wrapped in cloth. And uh, the grocer apparently was strong enough to fight back. And Dillinger had to run and hide for a couple of days. When he was arrested, his family did not come to court with a lawyer. They believed in... Um, the, the power of their faith. They were Quakers and uh, they didn't think they needed to bring a lawyer. And what happened was Dillinger got hit with a very long prison sentence and his accomplice walked with two years. So he went in, he was also a young married guy. He had just gotten married. So here he was at 19 years old his life is essentially over. He went into uh, a series of uh, state facilities, the first one being Pendleton Reformatory, and then he graduated over the years to Michigan City, which was the state pen. By the time he got out on parole, he was embittered. I know he wanted to be a, a baseball player, right? What do you think he would have done with his life if, if he hadn't gotten such an unusually harsh sentence? I know it's all speculation, but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, he was a baseball player in Mooresville, Indiana, where he lived. He, that, In fact, that's where he met his accomplice, Ed, Edgar Singleton. He was playing ball in prison, and uh, there's a common misconception that he, upon realizing he was being denied a parole, asked for a transfer to Michigan City because he's claimed to have said they have a real team there. But that's not really true. He was transferred because they found out that he could play baseball. This was what how he perceived it. And he wrote in a letter to his sister that, um, I guess I was transferred because they want me to play ball or something, not quoting verbatim, but because they have a team and they want me to play ball, I guess I was transferred. So whether or not playing baseball was Dillinger's real ambition in life, I don't really believe it was. I don't think he had an ambition. It's hard to say what he would have done had he not gotten involved in crime. His personality was such that he was mechanically adept and had had some jobs as a machinist. He was not not a strong character in prison, and this is my opinion only, my opinion is that he ingratiated himself with the really tough guys in order to be successful in prison, in order not to be beaten half to death or um, victimized in any way. And uh, his promise to them to rob banks and help fund their escape upon his parole is evidence of his ability to play as a team player and evidence of great loyalty. He was loyal to his friends. He followed through on his promise to rob the banks and fund the escape. So Dillinger had a lot of qualities that would have made him a good employee. But, in, you know, to say what he would have done, it's kind of hard to figure that out. 
He wouldn't have become a police officer, you know that. <laughs> right. So who were some of the guys that he met in prison um, that would make an impression on him? The guys he'd team up with once he got out. The friends that he made in prison, one of them, two of them, or three of them, I'm sorry, probably three started in Pendleton. They were John Hamilton, who was nickname was Red, Homer Van Meter, who was a close friend, somebody who was there for him whenever he needed Underworld Connections. Homer Van Meter was always around, and he was, uh, his nickname, I believe, was Van. And Harry Pierpont is the kind of the gold standard. The uh, He's considered on a lot of levels to have been, not that they had a leader in the first Dillinger gang, but he would have been the leader um, due to his alpha personality if they had had one. His nickname was Pete. It was also Handsome Harry. I don't know if Handsome Harry was a kind, maybe something made up by a reporter. It sounds like it would have been. But uh, these were the people that he had a, a real blood brother relationship with and and then there were others there was Charles Makeley Russell Clark these were the people who were part of the Michigan City escape they are part of what's commonly known as the first Dillinger gang and you know my apologies to people who are real Dillinger people because this is all something that is it's like you know the uh, Baltimore catechism in elementary school uh, I guess talking hearkening back to my Catholic school education it's just very basic but um, this is where he developed his relationship and his ambition to become a career criminal with these men. They're commonly called the first Dillinger gang. They're really not the first gang. When he was paroled, he took up with a series of low-level criminals, and um, they, in many ways, in their shifting, um, I guess, their shifting presence, because they kept getting arrested and, and one would get arrested and rat everybody else out, and they, they fell like dominoes, the actual first gang. But um, then you have this gang of guys who got out of Michigan City in the Great Escape, and uh, they went with Dillinger through different cities and towns uh, from Ohio through Chicago, Wisconsin, all the way out Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, all the way out to Tucson, Arizona, where they all got busted together. And uh, that was essentially the end of what's called the first Dillinger gang and also the end of Dillinger's real gang. Because after that, he wasn't with a gang. He had to go to Babyface Nelson's gang. And uh, I, some people are going to start screaming, no. <laughs> Was not Babyface Nelson's gang, but he did join the gang that Babyface Nelson had put together after the the Tucson arrests and his later escape. So, though those were the names of the men who he was hanging out with in Michigan City. There were also people who were being paroled from Michigan City. Harry Copeland was one of those. He was paroled. Clifford Mola was someone, and, you know, to put put a spin on the name, Clifford Mola drank turpentine and, and faked tuberculosis. I, I don't know how this happened, but it did. He drank something to simulate tuberculosis symptoms, and he was given a medical release. So it, it gives you an idea of just how... Um, hokey pokey the prison system was in those days so in addition to the men who crashed out of michigan city at the end of september 1933 you have the um men who were being paroled from michigan city 
who all got together with Dillinger after they were all paroled. It was almost like some sort of class of 1933. And they would get together for different bank robberies. They hung out in um, East Chicago, Indiana to... uh, procure weapons. There were people there who dealt guns, anything you wanted, anything you needed. So um, it was at that point that he also got back in um, in the groove with his friend Homer Van Meter, another parolee. And his parole was affected by his having written a letter or having someone write letters saying that he is now ready to resume life as a sterling citizen. Homer the, the <laughs> Homer, the bank robber and the train robber and every other kind of robber. And he got uh, paroled that way. Would you mind summarizing briefly the escape you just mentioned? Okay. The, the Michigan City escape is kind of the, I don't know, Moses in the desert for Dillinger, for Dillinger readers and Dillinger files. It took place... On the last week in September of 1933, it was a fantastic escape where a large group of men were able to take over the shirt factory in one of the buildings. And uh, with a series of maneuvers, they were able to lock up uh, guards and trustees. They actually walked through the uh, administration building, locking up people there. And um, they escaped from the uh, prison and got into either ran or through stolen cars, were able to make it out of Indiana. And uh, they made it out of Indiana by with with several detours. One car went into Indianapolis to meet with the girlfriend of Harry Pierpont. Remember, I mentioned Handsome Harry before. He had a girlfriend named Mary Kinda, who was hoping that her brother was going to be able to get in on the escape. But her brother did have tuberculosis. It was something that people had in those days, and he was put into the prison infirmary. So she was pretty upset that she put herself on the line and her brother did not get out. Another car made it out and went through Bean Blossom, a small town in Indiana. There, one of the escapees was either thrown or pushed from the car and um, James Jenkins, and he was shot and killed by a posse. Another one was actually roaming around with a sheriff that they had taken hostage, a man named Sheriff Neal. They took him hostage, and the one of these um, escapees wandered around with this sheriff for a day or two, and um, they ended up uh, giving themselves up and... Um, you know, bringing in Captain Matt Leach, the um, subject of the book that I wrote, Captain Matt Leach made the sheriff a suspect for a short time. Um, Captain Matt Leach came into this situation very understaffed. I don't want to say clueless because that is insulting. He had no cars, no radio, the Indiana, he was the captain of the Indiana State Police, and the biggest problem that they were anticipating that year was a lot of traffic to the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago. So they were completely taken by surprise. And, um, you know, whether or not the Michigan City escape was a uh, an inside job is something that's up for a lot of debate. There is some evidence to suggest that there was payoffs and people on the inside who knew about it and who were going to uh, open a couple of doors for them. That was never totally established, but there were investigations into this shocking escape And they never really came up with anything solid. But um, Harry Pierpont, Handsome Harry, 
he he said to his dying day that he knew the secrets of Michigan City and um, that he was going to take them to his grave. Now, it definitely was a little bit more going on than just nine convicts in the right place at the right time. There was more to it than that. And Harry Pierpont had connections in Kokomo, Indiana, and one of the connections liked to pose as a businessman, and he went into the prison and had an interview with an assistant warden and wrote some letters and said, you know, the, the way is clear now, stuff like that. I mean, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to look at it and say something was going on. Sure. And just so my listeners understand the timeline here, we talked first about Dillinger's initial stint in jail, his parole, then his membership in some of these low-level gangs, including the White Cap Gang, if I remember right. And then he is involved in breaking his friends out of prison, right? That's right. The term, the, the White Cap Gang, is kind of a loose phrase. Nobody really knows where that phrase comes from. You know, you tend to think they were running around wearing white caps, but uh, it, it didn't, it came maybe even from something very obscure and was picked up. But um, those guys were the first ones to, to rob banks with Dillinger. The white cap is very underreported and undercovered guys, in my opinion. You know, for every hundred people who have sort of a cult thing going for handsome Harry Pierpont, you don't find too many people interested in the um, shellac drinking Clifford Muller or um, Lefty Parker. Or, they were all people who knew Dillinger pretty well. <laughs> There's a Harry Pierpont cult? Well, <laughs> I say that loosely. I just think that some of these very well-known members of the Dillinger gang have a bit of a following, people who are very interested in them. Sure, I, I'm part of the cults. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a perfect segue to one of the main figures in your, your book, Matt Leach. As these events with Dillinger are happening in 1933, Matt Leach is making his presence known with the Indiana State Police. Would you mind giving us a brief background on Leach and how he got into law enforcement? It's such an interesting story. Well, Captain Matt Leach started uh, as a young immigrant named Matija Likanin, and um, he catapulted himself in his lifetime to the person who would become known as Dillinger's nemesis. He was the police captain that Dillinger liked to call, liked to send postcards to, and uh, he's in many ways the antithesis of Dillinger. And the way he started was uh, he was a very driven and hardworking young immigrant and came over with his brothers, and they were all they were macho men. The, the Lincoln and brothers, you know, they were very tall and very strong. And uh, one brother became a boxer and Matt Leach managed his career. Now, the family name was changed from Lincoln on to Leach again. It was a time when people weren't hanging on to the European identity so much. Everybody was under some pressure to be Americanized. So they changed the name to Leach and he took Matt for his name, never Matthew. He was always Matt. And um, he became a Gary police officer around 1920, Gary, Indiana, which was at the time an outback for Chicago crime. Gary, Indiana was, a, was the center of prostitution, gambling, bootlegging, it was, uh, along with East Chicago and Hammond, kind of like uh, actually had ties to Chicago mobsters. So he probably, in Gary, got to know a lot of the characters that he would, might later see or hear about in Chicago. He rose through the rank and file to lieutenant. He was a, an ambitious man. He put his brother, the boxer, 
in the papers. He became a press agent early on for his brother. And so when he was uh, actually asked to speak on Dillinger to the media, he had a lot of experience already because he had been very friendly with the media in the late 20s, early 30s. He was, uh, in the manner of politics, he was fired from his job on the Gary Police Department. But being fired wasn't necessarily a merit-based issue. He had been uh, accused of some sort of bribery uh, or bootlegging thing at the time that he was fired, but that was pretty common among the police in those days. He was fired for political reasons. They would fire 14 cops and hire 14 more. Same thing happened in the prisons. And um, to get back to Michigan City for a moment, uh, the month before that, the great escape, all of the prison guards had been fired and replaced by uh, green, green guards, they were called, with no experience simply for political reasons. When when the party turned over, when the Republicans went out and the Democrats came in, everybody lost their job. It, it was just something that was going on in Indiana at that time. So back to Leach and Gary Police Department. When he was fired from the Gary Police Department, he fooled around with a few jobs. Um, he worked in a furniture plant. He worked in a steel plant. Leach couldn't be kept to a desk. He couldn't be kept to an assembly line. He had a hyperactive personality and a tremendous amount of ambition, and he wasn't going to be held down. So he started to get involved with politics. He had also been a soldier. He went to, he was in the National Guard. He fought in World War One. He fought in the Mexican conflict and uh, was a staunch supporter of the American Legion. In the American Legion, he got to know a man named uh, Paul Voorhees McNutt, who was the future governor of Indiana. And Leach campaigned vigorously for Paul McNutt. When McNutt was elected governor in 1933, Leach was brought on in a very menial position known as a gatekeeper. I've tried to find out what that was. <laughs> you know, that's a job description that I can't really figure out what a gatekeeper was, but that's what he was. That's how he started, a gatekeeper for the Indiana legislature. Oh, interesting. Typically, uh, a gatekeeper is someone who protects a gate. Um, not necessarily a, a literal gate, but a gateway to McNutt, perhaps. Maybe he was responsible for screening people who wanted an audience with McNutt. That makes sense more than anything else. So uh, from his gatekeeper position, uh, he just started to move up the rank and file and uh, make friends. He made friends with Al Feeney. Now, Al Feeney, and these are real um, obscure names to people today, and I won't bore everybody with a big, long thing on who was Al Feeney, but he was putting together the first safety division, re reorganizing and reworking the Indiana State Police. And so he brought Matt Leach on as the first captain of the newly organized Indiana State Police. They were never called, they were state troopers, but in those days they didn't call themselves state troopers. That came later. This was a real eye-opener, right? Um, a, a good example of the patronage system. He, he stepped into a position above other candidates who had worked for the state police for years and far more experienced than him. That's a good point. The patronage system never looked for qualifications. It was all about what, you know, what have you done for me lately? And um, that would go against him later, but uh, as it did all of them. But uh, yes, he was an unpopular from, from the get-go, as they say, because of the fact that other people were probably vying for the position. 
And um, he was especially disliked by the group in Crown Point, Indiana, who would later be in charge of the body, the not the body, but the body and soul of John Dillinger after he was arrested in Tucson, Arizona. The, the very people who hated Matt Leach from the beginning would then have uh, Leach's prey, John Dillinger, and they would push Leach out. Leach wouldn't be able to get anywhere near him. So it worked against him ultimately, but um, no, he... He, he tried. He tried to do the best job he could. As the captain of the Indiana State Police, he had to be kind of the equivalent of a, of a police benevolent league president. Like, I live in New York, so we have the PBA, the, and, you know, the, we have the uh, commissioner who makes all the statements to the press. He had to be all of those people. He had to be, the commissioner who made every statement and qualified every move on the part of the governor, he had to manage a police force that had no radios in the cars. They were understaffed. They were, they were under, um, armed. They did not have the ammunition that the bad guys had. And, um, he was, he just had too much on his plate to use a cliche. And, um, it would have been okay if the biggest problem they were facing was actually what they thought would be the biggest problem, the traffic going from Indiana into Chicago for the World's Fair. But, um, you know, they were, they were pretty blind to what was going on. There were, there was another huge prison break on Memorial Day that spring that had sprung 10 big convicts. Uh, Wilbur Underhill, the tri-state killer, uh, Harvey Bailey, heavy hitters in the 1930s Midwest crime wave. There was the uh, the kidnapping of um, Charles Urschel by the Machine Gun Kelly gang. Stuff was going on all over the place. Why they had these blinders on and why they didn't believe it was going to happen in Indiana is is really up for conjecture. But when it did hit the fan, if I can be so vulgar, Leach had a lot that he had to deal with. And he he dealt with it initially. He got away with it. The press still liked him. He was able to give grand uh, patronizing statements and um, use a lot of platitudes like, we're going to get him. And uh, that worked for a while but not for too long. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Revis Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. 
We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. So Dillinger's rise and fall was pretty meteoric. It, it all happened in about a year, right? Not his criminal career as a whole, of course, but as someone famous, being followed by millions. How did he move from relative obscurity to becoming someone written about in newspapers every day? How did that happen? Well, they say that with the time frame that you mentioned, they call it 13-month crime spree. Maybe it was 14 months from May until his death in the following July. But, um, well, I give... I I think and I give Matt Leach the credit for Dillinger's initial ascendancy because he became somewhat fixated on him. I don't want to say obsessed because I'm not a psychiatrist, but he was fixated enough on Dillinger and he made sure that Dillinger's name was in the newspapers all the time. And um, he really, he focused on Dillinger when there really was no real reason to do that because there were other members of the gangs that Dillinger was running around with. At the time, he also leaned very heavily on the research and the detective work of one Pinkerton detective named Forrest Huntington. And Mr. Huntington laid a lot of the groundwork for who Dillinger was and and gave it to Matt Leach. And what happened was Matt Leach was taking too much information to the media. And Forrest Huntington was getting really upset because a lot of this was confidential, names of informants, um, whatever type of police work he was doing. As a Pinkerton detective, he liked to keep it close to the vest. And um, with Leach telling every bit of intelligence to the newspapers, Forrest Huntington got washed his hands eventually of Matt Leach. And a lot of police officers in Indiana started to feel the same way. They didn't they didn't buy into the idea of, you know, telling it from the mountain, you know, go tell it on the mountain. They did not want it done that way. But that was what catapulted Dillinger initially into becoming such a well-known character. And um, by the time he was arrested in Tucson, that was from the Michigan City escape happened in September. There were a couple of rather startling bank robberies, with which garnered a lot of newspaper publicity. And... These were bank robberies where hostages were loaded onto running boards. Those old cars had these these like running boards that you could stand on around the doors. And um, this this kind of cartoon atmosphere surrounding these bank robberies is what got these bank robberies into the newspapers. There, this was happening all over the Midwest at the time, and there is no real reason why Dillinger would have gotten so much attention just on his own during the months of October, November, December, and January when there were other members of the gang, possibly more charismatic, who had uh, more colorful criminal backgrounds, it was a matter of Matt Leach had a kind of fixation with Dillinger. Part of the fixation was also Dillinger's proximity to Leach. Leach thought he could catch him, you see. He thought he could catch Dillinger, and he thought that this would give him a big collar, a big name in the papers, because his intelligence told him that Dillinger was in um, Indiana, Chicago, places where Leach was able to go. And um, 
Gary in East Chicago, Indiana, where Dillinger actually did have an apartment. So Leach felt, okay, it looks good. It looks like I can catch him. So let me put his name out there. Let me put my name out there. And when he is caught, it's going to look good for me. But excuse me, please. I don't want to make Captain Matt Leach sound like an egomaniac. That's doing him a disservice. He wanted the glory for Governor McNutt. He wanted the glory for the administration that had given him this great job. And he wanted to give them the good payback. It started to go bad for him when he missed Dillinger by minutes in Gary. He missed him by minutes in East Chicago. And at that point, it became like, all right, Dillinger is this jackrabbit, this guy that Leach can't catch. And that's when it started to go south for Leach. And that's when Dillinger started to look really good because he was the jackrabbit. Nobody could catch him. And Dillinger fed off this rivalry, right? He, he enjoyed it, it seemed. How did he feel about Leach? The Dillinger gang hated Matt Leach. Um, Dillinger did feel the rivalry, and he uh, did send him a series of uh, postcards. Nothing to, no, nothing obscene, nothing, I'm going to kill you, nothing like that. Hey, Cap, hey, Cap, C-A-P-T, missed you, you know, missed you, I was watching you, you didn't see me, ha-ha, crazy stuff like that. But... The gang itself, they hated Matt Leach. It became very personal because at one point, Harry Pierpont, the uh, the member of the gang who was the handsome Harry, the trigger man, the charismatic member of the gang, and also the toughest, the most ruthless, his mother was arrested. His mother was arrested in Terre Haute, Indiana, and his brother was arrested. But Harry Pierpont was a mama's boy, so you don't mess with that. You know, if anybody's ever seen that movie White Heat, where James Cagney is just totally obsessed with his mother and vice versa, this was the type of relationship that Pierpont had with his mother, Lena Pierpont. So when she was arrested in Terre Haute, Pierpont put two and two together and decided that Leach was behind the arrest. Now, this was something that Matt Leach denied. But whether or not he was behind it, we really, most people believe he was. So he hated Leach. The malls hated him. Pearl Elliott in, um, in Kokomo, who was laundering the money that Dillinger was uh, getting through the bank robberies, the money that would fund the escape, she vowed to kill him, Matt Leach. Mary Kinder, Harry Pierpont's mall, her house was being raided by Matt Leach. You know, they didn't worry about due process too much in those days, and there were no warrants. But they would just bang on the door to her Indianapolis house, her family home where her mother lived and her sister, and they would just rifle through the house and grab whatever they wanted to. So Leach was a despised character, and Dillinger had him on his, he had like this kind of de facto uh, list of people he was going to kill. But he wasn't a hitman. Dillinger wasn't a hitman. He wasn't the type to, he wasn't a contract killer. He just had his, you know what kind of list that is. You know what we call that list, right? <laughs> he had that list. And Matt Leach was on it. And um, Harry Pierpont allegedly did try to shoot Leach. He had a chance at one point. It's a myth or a a wild story that he had a chance to shoot him on an Indianapolis street and Mary Kinder talked him out of it. So there was no love lost between him. It was almost as though the gang was putting all of their fears and anxieties and antisocial tendencies on the head of this one police officer. 
Did Leach bother Dillinger's family members at all in an attempt to twist the screws into Dillinger? Well, he was um, one to go to Mooresville, Indiana, and um, and he was seen there. And uh, yes, he did. He did try to bother them. And um, his interest in Mooresville kind of took a strange turn, though. When the FBI got involved in the Dillinger story a couple of months down the road, and it looked very apparent that everybody was pushing Leach out, he hung around Mooresville in order to see how much surveillance the FBI was doing in Mooresville. And he made a lot of complaints to the to the Indiana police board that the FBI agents were endangering his men because there were too many uh, law enforcement agents in Mooresville. Uh, he was complaining that he kind of wanted it for himself and he wasn't going to get it that way anymore. So, uh, yeah, Leach was um, a person who had his favorites. Like, he always went after... Members of the, the Dillinger family, the uh, Mary Kinder's family, you know, Pierpont's mall, Pierpont's family, people who were close by, in, in close proximity, people who lived or were around Indiana. Interestingly enough, he stayed away from others, like the, ha the family of John Hamilton, which was up in uh, Stalsay-Marie near Michigan, he never got involved with them. He never got involved with Homer Van Meter or Babyface Nelson. It's almost as though he just had the people that he wanted to focus on and everybody else just stayed in the peripheral. It was a little odd. Wild. So how did Dillinger ultimately separate from Harry Pierpont? Well, they were, as I said, the blood brothers of um, two penitentiaries. And then Dillinger got Pierpont out by robbing banks and stockpiling the money to pay for the escape. They were separated in Tucson, Arizona, when they were arrested there. That was the um, pivotal point for the the first Dillinger gang, or what was commonly known in the newspapers at that time as the terror gang. That was the arrest of Charlie Makeley, Russell Clark, Dillinger, and Harry Pierpont. They were arrested. It was fantastic newspaper coverage of that arrest. And the malls were arrested. Dillinger's girl, Evelyn, I say girl. Can you still say that? Is that politically incorrect? Dillinger's lady, Evelyn. <laughs> I don't know. I can't say it. Dillinger's girl. Dillinger's uh, woman friend, Evelyn Freshette, uh, Pierpont's mall, Mary Kinder, and um, uh Russell Clark's mall's name was Opal Long. They were all arrested too. So, and arrested peacefully by Tucson traffic cops. So it was a fantastic series of events as they were picked up one by one. And the newspaper coverage was incredible. And every aspect of the story was covered in the Tucson newspapers. But at that point, Dillinger never saw Pierpont again because Dillinger was sent to Indiana to stand trial for the murder of William Patrick O'Malley, who was a police officer killed in a robbery. And Pierpont, with Clark and Makeley, was going to Ohio to stand trial for capital murder in the murder of a sheriff in Lima, Ohio. And Ohio people, don't skin me if I said Lima. I don't know how to if it's Lima or Lima. I mean, I always say Lima, Ohio, but I thought I would try Lima <laughs> for this. <laughs> so, um, you know, they went they went to um, Ohio, and it was very prophetic because the statement 
you know, Dillinger goes to Indiana and the rest go to Ohio meant that all were going to the states that had the electric chair and all were going on trial for first degree murder. So it was a death sentence for all of them. I did not, admittedly, I did not review our earlier interview um, about Dillinger's women. So if some of this is a bit repetitive from those episodes, my apologies. I can't remember if we talked about the Crown Point escape. I think we did. Um, I, I know I could keep you here for hours, I'm sure, with your knowledge on the subject. We have to be a little selective on what we cover here. But I really want to ask you about Leach's involvement in the events as before, after, and including his escape from the Crown Point Jail. Would you mind summarizing for us that escape? It's such a pivotal moment in the Dillinger saga. Oh, the escape from Crown Point, it's almost become something that you see every day now since this um, whole business of exhuming Dillinger's body, the pros and cons. It seems like every news abstract compresses it into the the big event, which was the escape with the wooden gun. And um, it's almost become cliche at this point, even to to talk about it, right? But um, it needs to be addressed because it was an important moment in the life and times of Dillinger. He was sent to Crown Point County, and I will try to keep it in league with what we're talking about, which is Matt Leach, Captain Matt Leach. Captain Matt Leach fought a, the, the good fight in Tucson, Arizona, for jurisdiction of John Dillinger. And he was defeated by a faction from Crown Point, Indiana. These were coincidentally the men who hated him when he became the um, first captain of the Indiana State Police because they were a different faction. They wanted their own people in there. So now, now it was really payback time, right? Leach went in there. He wanted Dillinger brought back to Michigan City. And uh, Crown Point won jurisdiction over John Dillinger through we we don't know for sure, but it's generally assumed that there was a little bit of machinations going on behind the scenes in Lake County, which is, I guess you can use the phrase Lake County and Crown Point synonymously. They both mean the same thing as we talk about the wooden gun escape. When Dillinger was brought to Crown Point, there was just no security. It, it's Everybody knows the pictures of the uh, prosecutor, Robert Estill, with his arm around Dillinger. That picture was taken after they had all had had some beer. Sheriff Lillian Holly, the um, the woman who was the sheriff, and she was pretty much uh, her reputation was destroyed because of it. She had a keg of beer out there, and the reporters and Captain John Stage from Chicago and big Captain Reynolds, big Dillinger people, the you know the the most important people in the hunt were all there, and it must have been a real carnival atmosphere, drinking beer, the news the news reels are there, everyone's taking pictures of this charismatic guy, and. If you look at these pictures and compare them to how people are treated today when they're under arrest, he wasn't shackled. He wasn't handcuffed. He was wearing his own clothes. He had a sharp pen protruding out of his pocket. Not a pen, I'm sorry. A sharp pencil protruding from his vest pocket. There was, what kind of security was there? And uh, everybody was feeling very confident. There were armed civilians patrolling outside that possibly was the reason for the overconfidence so he went into crown point county jail with a lot of ceremony at that point his attorney he switched from local not very not very uh 
what's the word I'm looking for? He had used a series of lawyers without much gravitas. He switched over to an attorney named Louis Piquette, who was an um, a Chicago character who uh, was really up to the task of representing Dillinger up in, in the media and everything else. He, he was somebody who could have been in a Warner Brothers movie, Piquette. Piquette brought in a series of visitors. One was an alibi witness named Maya Bogue. He brought in Dillinger's mall, Evelyn Freshette, to visit. It was a pretty open city there. So uh, March 3rd, 1934, Dillinger escaped. He escaped by producing a wooden gun. The origins of this gun, there was a, the assistant to his new underworld attorney, Louis Piquet, had had the gun made by a carpenter, and somehow the gun was brought into the prison. The uh, Some people may still think that he carved it out of soap or whittled it. That's kind of a, a popular thing from the Woody Allen movie, Take the Money and Run, but uh, it was it was snuck in or or brought into him and so he he started with the wooden gun he jabbed uh somebody Ernest Blanc a couple of people like that trust a trustee an assistant warden he got them all into a prison cell locked them up went through the building went through the kitchen found some Thompson submachine guns that just happened to be sitting out. Whether they were a plant, it's possible. He took the Thompson submachine guns. He went out through the back door, into the walked a few steps into the garage, and took a car that was, it's commonly been called the sheriff's car. Now, honestly, that was just another way to get at Lillian Holly, the woman sheriff, and make her look like a laughingstock. It wasn't necessarily the sheriff's car. They were called county cars, and they were cars that were used by law enforcement. And somehow in the circus that, you know, took place after his escape, and everybody wanted to blame it on the woman sheriff, quote, unquote, that that was part of it. Oh, he stole her car. What a dupe she was, you know. So that was the Crown Point escape. And uh, he was able to get himself into Chicago in the company of an African-American escapee named Her Herbert Youngblood. And uh, they parted ways. And he went into Chicago and he found his way to the home the rented apartment of his uh, girlfriend's sister, where he held, he kind of hung out with her on Halstead Street in Chicago, and he took his girlfriend, Evelyn Frechette, moved the stolen car to some block in Chicago and abandoned it there on the north side. So uh, Matt Leach was one of the first people, Captain Matt Leach was one of the first people to say, how could this have happened? I wanted him in the, the state pen, in the, the solitary confinement in the state pen. Why wasn't he there? How did this happen? But at that point, the walls were closing in on Leach. He was being pushed out by the very factions at Crown Point who had sheltered Dillinger, who had posed with Dillinger, who had made sure that Dillinger was taken out of Tucson and put in a minimum security county jail. But they had the upper hand at that point, and they conspired to keep Matt Leach away from everything. So Leach wasn't even really able to get his, his um, opinion out there at that point, he had fallen so out of favor that even his own bosses, the Indiana Police Board and Al Feeney and even the governor were telling Leach, listen, you got to you got to knock it off. No more statements, no more statements to the press. So as much as Leach knew what happened at Crown Point was 
really wrong and contributed to that escape, he had no venue for promoting his ideas at that point. Well, this wraps up part one of John Dillinger versus Matt Leach, part two on its way. In it, we talk about J. Edgar Hoover and his rivalry with Matt Leach. We talk about some of the peripheral law enforcement figures who attempt to hunt and capture John Dillinger. And Ellen offers her opinion on the recent exhumation attempts of John Dillinger's corpse. And again, my guest has been Ellen Polson, who is author along with Lori Hyde of Chasing Dillinger, Police Captain Matt Leach, J. Edgar Hoover, and the rivalry to capture public enemy number one. Until next time. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.